against the machines. This is a race with the machines. From quantum physics to poetry, from neuroscience to geography, from philosophy to immersive realities, Building 21 is a space where one can explore, play with, manipulate, bend, break, and probe the multifaceted dimensions of ideas, knowledge, and thinking. Join us in conversation with Dr. Redfin, professor at ASU and founder of the Center for Science and the Imagination. Dr. Finn explores how we can reassert our active agency and imagination in an age of passive technology. Find out how the Academy can be a site of radical futurist reimagining, particularly through interdisciplinary thinking that combines approaches from the sciences, technologies, and humanities. Should I bring it closer? Would that make a difference? No. No, I don't think so. Close enough. Hello? All right. How are you? We're back. Good. How are you? Good. So, Professor Finn, uh, uh, my name is Olivier Diaz. I'm, uh, I'm joined by uh, Rebecca Borosso and uh, Damien uh, Artica, and I'll let, them, uh, I'll let them introduce themselves. Sure. So I'm I'm Damien. I'm uh, working with LEV on the Radical Futures uh, project that he mentioned in the email. It's uh, great to meet you. Undergraduate student. Ah, likewise. Undergraduate student, yeah, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> Hi there. Uh, my name is Rebecca. I'm also an undergrad finishing after quite a long, strange degree, meandering degree um, in geography. And I work with Olivier and Damien at a kind of new research institute at McGill called Building 21. Well, it's everything but a research institute. Well, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. It's an intellectual playground, but... Right. So, Professor Finn, as I told you in the email, as, uh, when I read your article, which was published, I believe, probably a couple of years ago on, uh, in, on uh, the E.ON website, I thought it was a fantastic article, and I've used it extensively. <laughs> and I've used your concept of the centaur extensively. I thought it was beautiful. And many of the things you said about arts and computers and algorithm were very, very, uh, very interesting. But uh, let's let's start uh, let's start with the beginning. Could you maybe introduce yourself? My name is Ed Finn. I'm a professor here at Arizona State University. Uh, I'm appointed in the School for the Future of Innovation and Society, as well as the School of Arts, Media, and Engineering. Uh, and I'm the founding director of the Center for Science and the Imagination. So my work explores a lot of these uh, themes that you've been discussing, the shift in our relationship with computation and the way that we imagine ourselves in relation to computational systems and structures. I'm very interested in the future more broadly. How do we tell stories about the future and how do we create a sense of resilience, a sense of agency, a sense of responsibility uh, around the future and the challenges that we're going to face from climate change to political upheaval to automation and machine learning and artificial intelligence. Do you think it's sort of a sort of a pedestrian question here, but do you think that all of these things are possible within academia? <laughs> I, I, I think they're necessary. Uh, wh whether they're possible or not, we have to try <laughs> to address these things for two reasons. First, 
because I think that addressing these issues is is fundamental to our capacity to survive and adapt to the 21st century and the many challenges coming our way. Fundamentally, I think this is a question of imagination, powering people and opening up spaces for the kind of thinking through the impossible and seeing the world through new, in new ways that, that these are the precursors to resilience. And so, you know, these are necessary skills that we're going to need to cultivate, not just among a few elites, but everybody to navigate the challenges ahead of us. Uh, and second of all, I think it's also necessary for the academy. I think that especially speaking from the from the perspective of the humanities and my PhDs in literature, I think that there is an urgent need to reassert the value of fundamental humanistic skills like critical thinking, uh, dealing with ambiguity, complexity, and contradiction, and thinking through the, uh, the connection between affect and cognition, thinking and feeling. Uh, all of these things are part of the toolkit, if you will, of the humanities. And I think in the past five years, 10 years, it's become increasingly obvious that those skills, those uh, critical skills, juxtaposition of technical and uh, critical and humanistic skills are vitally important because if you just approach the world as a kind of rationalist engineering problem, you wind up with tremendous problems, wind up with unintended consequences, systems that are not capable of adapting to the, the, the messiness of reality as it exists. And so this is a place where there's a tremendous opportunity for the academy to participate uh, and to think through not just what it means to be part of the civic fabric of life in the 21st century, but also what the mission of education, higher, higher education should be in the 21st century. That's interesting. It also seems to really make a case for bridging or creating strong links between the humanities and the sciences in uh, universities, in institutions of higher learning of which we know there's very little actual communication. Absolutely. I think that one of the big challenges we face is the obsession with specialization mm-hmm. and the, the two cultures problem, which is still with us in many ways. And that that's a sort of a, an intellectual or, or theory problem, but it's also a methodological problem that people just don't feel like they have permission to do stuff outside of their narrow path or track. And so often in the, the kinds of projects and experiments and collaborations we create, a lot of our work initially is finding the right way to give people permission to take a creative risk and do something that maybe, you know, they were not expertly trained to do and invite them to to do something new and to create an environment where that kind of creative risk taking is permissible and encouraged and rewarded and supported. And so a lot of that has to do not just with putting people in the same room and saying, okay, you're the artist and you're the scientist now work together, but to try to blur and take away some of those boundaries and those roles entirely and to say, you're just, you know, you're you and you bring a number of different skills and interests and questions to the table and to operate from that notion of that, you know, a, a sort of an older notion of, of a human being driven by curiosity and ambition to have some impact in the world. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. <laughs> but that, that's fascinating it's, it's as if it's as if we were asking someone to talk about building 21 I right? know, I know. <laughs> it's exactly it's exactly it's what time. we're trying to do also but if i look at at your article uh, i think you and, and damien and i discussed this before uh, before we uh, we reach out to you there's something in your article about this tyranny of the average that maybe computers are pushing us towards, right? And in the article, you say we need art to surprise us in order to blow up the world, to create fissures out of which the new can emerge. 
And you've talked, and imagination is essentially that, right? It's pushing the boundaries and exploring the space of possibilities from different perspectives. But is that a, still possible? And how is that affected by common software, by applications that we all have and that gives us a view of the world that's similar for all of us from GPS to dating apps to listening to music. How is that new still possible and how is that push for imagination still possible? It's an excellent question and I think that's a struggle that we are all contending with. And you can imagine the Silicon Valley pyramid scheme as collecting not just tremendous amounts of money for a very small group of people, but also sort of reordering and creating a hierarchy of imagination where very few mm -hmm. people make significant aesthetic and design choices that end up impacting millions or billions of others. And th this seems sort of like an abstract question even 10 years ago. But today, you know, I, I, I don't even know. I think that last I checked, there were two and a half billion people using Facebook. So that's a world that has its own weather systems that has significant political and cultural impacts, as, of course, we've, we've been hearing about on the news for quite a while. So, you know, when you change the design of the like button or you, you know, change the, 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 the ways in which you can self-identify your gender on Facebook, this has a tremendous impact. And I think that the challenge is the whole premise of cloud-based ubiquitous computing infrastructure of modern digital life, and it's worth Uh, you know, pointing out still that there is a tremendous digital divide and there are a lot of people who are not part of this connected world. But for, for those of us who are, you know, the whole uh, premise is abstraction and simplification. You push a button and something happens. And all of the other tasks and contextual background that used to be part of that task, like, you know, getting something delivered to your house the next day from Amazon, instead of figuring out where to go and going to a store and finding it in the store and maybe selecting from some options and purchasing it and bringing it home. You know, all of this is now offshore, as it were. It becomes other people's problems. But as I wrote about in my book, you know, all of that context doesn't go away. All of the problems don't go away. They just get sort of sucked up in this funnel and dumped onto other people who then have to suffer. And the problem with this from an, you know, aside from the obvious sort of problems, labor and justice, the, the problem from an imagination perspective is that you're also letting other people imagine the world for you. Mm -hmm. You're letting other people write the menu of your day and you're just selecting from the dishes that they've prepared. And it's, uh, you know, th there's nothing intrinsically wrong with this. We're always going to engage with other people and ask them. We're going to celebrate artists. We're going to celebrate great newspapers and magazines. We depend on other people to help us shape our informational worldview. But as we automate more of this, we're increasingly building a world where even the people who design these systems are not thinking about them as aesthetic systems. And so they're not thinking about The, the cultural consequences, the social or ethical consequences of their systems. They're just designing, for example, YouTube uh, designed to maximize viewing. The goal of YouTube's Play Next algorithm was to get people to keep watching YouTube. So you start by watching a video about Donald Trump and, you know, five or 10 or 20 videos later, you're watching some ultra right wing uh, neo-Nazi propaganda because the algorithm says, oh, if we just give you something a little more salacious, a little more tantalizing, a little more extreme, you'll, you'll keep watching because that's what the data shows. So this is a, this is a problem. And it's hard to think of 
how you carve out that space, that rupture for imagination. And it requires, you know, there, there, there are many different strategies to explore. And, so, you know, some of these problems are old problems. They're not new problems. Artists have been looking for ways to disrupt accepted reality for, for centuries. But I think that the problem is more urgent now that we are empowering so many of these systems to make decisions about our lives, like who gets to be hired and fired, what information, not just what you read from the menu, right, but that notion of writing the menu so that the whole periphery of the information we're even vaguely aware of, the horizon of your intellectual perspective, is determined by filtering and curating algorithms. I think it's certainly possible to create these kinds of disruption, but the first step is to start to become literate, right, to become aware of and start to see how these systems are shaping our collective imaginaries. Mm, that's really interesting. So I was noticing both in what you were just saying and also in your in your Ian article that there's you're highlighting a sort of alienation from from creativity and competence. Right, like um, you have the example of the camera, which now it, you have uh, through like uh, iPhone technology, you know, smartphones. It's almost impossible to take, you know, a bad photograph. And so, um, where the artist places themselves in terms of creativity sort of becomes a problem. And you mentioned Bruce Sterling's idea of like the sort of new aesthetic as as a possible solution. So disrupting the sort of digital forms in, in, in which they're enmeshed. And I'm just wondering, so like in the science and imagination program, what sort of ways are you offering for people to take control of their own creativity again, so to speak, and liberate themselves from these kind of hierarchies of imagination that you're describing? Well, one of the major tools we use is to create a specific environments, times and places for constrained creative actions. So a lot of the work we do begins with some kind of a, a world-building exercise, a narrative hackathon, a book sprint. These are all terms we use for different flavors of this of this kind of approach where we'll, we'll get a group of people together and generally in a pretty low-fi, non-technological way, we'll challenge them to do some stuff over the span of a few hours or a couple of days with very short time constraints. So you say, you know, okay, we know that very generally, just to pull an example out of the air, we did a project recently around uh, solar energy in the Southwest. So, you know, we know we're interested in this question of solar energy in the Southwest. Uh, maybe we'll spend some time brainstorming about key themes and challenges, you know, major sort of subunits of this broad umbrella. But now you have an hour to start coming up with a world. So imagine your version of this future. What is it going to look like to live in a city like Phoenix in 2050? You know, what are the challenges? What are the the constraints of this world, who lives there, who has access, what does the timeline start to look like? That might be another exercise. You know, you maybe you spend 40 minutes constructing a timeline, getting from today to this distant future. And then you begin to build characters, you build the, begin the, build the components of a narrative. So, you know, one lens for this is the notion of world building. And this is really agnostic to the question of technology. People use world building to build video games and they use it to write science fiction novels. You could use it to write a play or create an immersive performance. But it breaks you out of the, the, the entire logic of the menu. It asks you to start from scratch and to create something wholly new, even if it's just in a very thumbnail sketch sort of way. Now, inevitably, as soon as you start doing this, you are engaging with media. You're using tools, whether it's a pencil and paper or you know, an AutoCAD program. But by starting with that premise of, of novelty and starting with the blue sky, I think you already open things up in a way that's very different from the kinds of creative challenges that 
a lot of computational culture creates for us, which is sort of like, tell us how you're feeling right now. Let's ha see a photograph of you at the birthday party. You know, these are really sort of reports and status updates. There's a very presentist bias to that, you know, a lot of focus on what's happening right now and what and, and this entire this whole notion of the contemporary. And to the extent that the future is really part of computational culture, it's, you know, it's only a short-term future. There's very little really grounded reflection, I think, on, on a longer-term future, a future that involves transformative change. Because that's not really, in the, you know, that's, that's hard to model. It's not easy for computers to do. Let's focus on the things that computers are good at so we can make the computers look good. It seems to me that you're that by doing that, one passes from a kind of passive way of interacting with kind of large scale data to a more active one by going off starting offline. If that that's it seems that that's how you're kind of a clear uh, model that you're using in in your program. Yeah, is that correct? Yeah, I think that's right. And you know, you've uh, another operating hypothesis I have is that. Storytelling, which, you know, is, is integrally connected to this whole notion of world building. Storytelling is, is one of the only tools we humans have to deal with complexity. We're, we're really bad at mental math. We're not very good at assessing risk. We're pretty bad at statistics. But we're pretty good at creating narrative microcosms of the world. And a good story can actually encode a lot of ambiguity in it. It can encode tension. It can encode a foreground and a background. It can encode, you know, multiple conflicting goals and, 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 and all of the things you would want out of a out of a simulation or a model of the world. And so stories are the one thing, maybe the only thing, you know, I'm not sure about that, but one of one of the only things at least that we have to contend with an increasingly complex reality. And so what you do when you encourage people to flex that storytelling muscle and not just to be consumers of narratives, which is what a lot of our consumer culture is all about, right? right. You know, mm. but to be authors and co-creators and collaborators and remakers and hackers of narratives, that's a much more empowering position to be in. And it allows you to contend with big data and complex systems, and systems thinking in a way that's, I think, inherently much more digestible by other people. Mm. I have sort of a, a pedagogical question. One of the things that I think we spend a lot of time thinking about at Building 21 is is balancing, you know, what you called like a kind of permission to engage in invention and reinvention, counterinvention perhaps, with a sort of, you know, systems literacy. I think in, at the end of your article, you outline kind of algorithmic literacy as a kind of almost socially responsible thing to have in order to like understand the structures in which you live. And so how do, how do we go about teaching people to disrupt how do you teach kind of revolutionary thought? How do you teach creativity? Well, I think there are two basic approaches. The one is to teach by example and to model how you can take something apart and start to you know look at its innards or make it into something entirely new. And the other is to just sort of push people off the diving board and you know <laughs> see what happens. So what, one exercise that I, I like to do, I've written about, is have my students play with Google Autocomplete, which I'm sure you're familiar with. You know, oh. Google, you're typing something in the search bar, and Google will suggest things for you. And I'll give them some, some sort of a seed phrase, like, why should I, or how do I, or something. And then their challenge is to keep adding things on, letters or whole words, and to create their own original poetry or a short story using only the things that autocomplete suggests. And so this is a, you know, a modest example of a kind of disruptive activity that I think for 
for most of my students makes them think about autocomplete in a different way, and it, it makes makes them aware of a little piece of the algorithmic machinery that's operating all around them. And what I like about that example is not just that it sort of makes visible something that was not so visible before, but it also is an interesting kind of communal experience because the whole raison d'etre of autocomplete is that, you know, thousands of other people have typed these things into their computers as well. Sometimes they're very poignant, very personal things. And it's, it's I think, a powerful experience to have to, you know, define these sayings, these things, these, these moments of communion you're sharing with thousands of perfect strangers united by the algorithm, and then to create something new out of that. And so I think these kinds of structured exercises can be really powerful. Uh, there's a great book called Uncreative Writing by, I think it's Kenny Goldsmith, if I'm remembering his last name right. That's a great re- uh, pedagogical resource. I've uh, borrowed an activity from that, which is to have students transcribe a short audio file, a recording of a, a, you know, a radio interview, and to point out how different all of their transcriptions are. You know, this, this thing that theoretically should be the same for everyone, in fact, includes all sorts of artistic license and interpretation. And that's a good aleatory exercise for students to recognize that even in something that seems totally robotic and mundane, you cannot help but insert your own human creativity and idiosyncrasy. I suppose that's actually a third way. You know, there's the, um, so there's showing, showing people modeling, there's just thrusting students into it and, and, and asking them to do something that they've never done before. Uh, and then there's this idea of demonstrating how they're already doing this kind of work, but they just don't realize it. So uh, let me, let me just, uh, probably the, probably the well, close to the last question. Cause we've, you know, we're taking up a lot of your time here. <laughs> Can we go back just to, for a minute to, the, to that question of, of a sort of the, you know, the push from algorithm into a hierarchy of imagination? Uh, in, your, in your article, you, you make this extraordinary reference to Gary Kasparov and the way that chess is being played right now uh, with what uh, he calls centaur. So teams of humans with algorithm playing against other teams with, of humans and algorithm. And in the article, you do say, because I think that's really interesting, these centaur games are beautiful, the quality of play is higher, the noise of simple human errors reduced, making space for the kind of pure contest that the platonic solids and geometries of chess idealize. Now, what do you think is that tension? Because on, on the one hand, there is there is a sort of a push towards the average uh, from from the software we, we're using. On the on the other hand, uh, just somebody just came into the studio, uh, on, or what what you know what stands as our studio. On the other hand, uh, <laughs> there is through algorithm and the example you just gave about uh, using Google to you know uh, autocomplete is a good example of that. On the other hand, software also opens up the space of possibilities and allow us, both artists and regular people, to do things and experience things and express things that were impossible before. When I when I was a student a long time ago and I was doing film production, of course, you could only make film if you had a lot of equipment. It was really heavy and really expensive. And now you use your iPhone, you use iMovie on your computer, you upload to YouTube, and you can actually make beautiful things and very powerful things. And that is also because of the simplicity of software and algorithms. So how do you balance both? I think it's a great point. I think that there is something empowering about the, the ubiquity of 
those kinds of technologies. And, you know, the fact that everybody is now carrying a pretty effective and powerful camera and recording system around with them all the time. Again, everybody means people who can afford a smartphone. But I think that there's there's an interesting kind of maybe maybe a power curve. I'm I'm searching for the right metaphor here. So the advertising for the iPhone idealizes exactly that kind of behavior, right? That buy this phone and you're going to become one of those people who can make a really amazing video using your phone. You're going to be you're going to become an artist, an you're influential artist, yeah. And, and an influential artist, right? And beautiful, yeah, yeah. usually, too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you'll get to look like those people in the commercial. Right. Um, <laughs> but not very many people do that, right? There's this. There's a, a very small percentage of people who are actually going to find a way to use these tools to do something powerful and compelling and new. And most of us are, you know, never even going to open the app, right? We're gonna, uh, or, or we'll take a photo. We'll take a, like a, you know, a, a computationally support, uh, supported average photograph and feel pretty good about that, right? And I, I don't think there's, I think it's still, there's still a good to be had. There's still a sort of a social benefit to, you know, empowering more, more people to use these tools, even if they're not going to, even if they're just kind of cooking, you know, coloring by numbers, as it were. Mm. I think that the bigger question is, you know, how do we support people who want to do something totally new? And this is, this is, there's a kind of interesting analogy here to autocomplete, which is that the moral hazard of autocomplete is when you type something in and then autocomplete pops up a suggestion that's close to what you were going to say, but it's not exactly the same. You know, it's like 90% there or 80% there or 70% there. And we're lazy, you know, and yeah. so, of course, you get to go with what autocomplete suggested because it's close enough, right? I think a lot of our creative use of computational tools is like that, too. It's like, oh, well, this is close enough. Or it becomes a lure, so it, it, it channels our creative energy in a direction, a particular direction that's supported by the affordances of the software. And if we didn't, if you didn't have the iPhone, you know, maybe you would have come up with something else to do. Now, would that other thing have been more interesting or less interesting? Would it have been aesthetically better? You know, those are very hard questions. But there's a kind of gravitational pull. Once you build the software and people are using the software, there's a gravitational pull. And as Facebook or, or the history of Google demonstrates, you know, Google started out as, as a map to the Internet. Now Google kind of is the Internet. You know, it's like the plumbing for the Internet. But it's the architect, right? It has tremendous structural power to to set yeah. the rule, the terms of the game and how things are organized and how things connect to one another. And so that's a, that's a, a shift, right? So that the, you could call it path dependency. You can call it, you know, the kind of grammars of action, which is a nice term from the critic Alexander Galloway. You know, once you once you design the system, then it's very tempting to use the system the way it was designed, or it's tempting to do the things that the system makes it easy to do. I don't know if that really answers your question. I'm not <laughs> sure. No, no, it's great. <laughs> no, it, 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 yeah. it does, and I think it, it reflects what probably, you know, seems like your, your, your center is trying to do, and also what we're trying to do here at Building 21, right, is to walk sort of this fine line between those two tensions, uh, between uh, just had a conversation with a student who just explained to me the concept of criticality, right? So that that, that point between absolute uh, entropy or and absolute non-entropy, right? Between chaos and absolute... Uh, order. order. Chaos and order, yeah. Right, yeah. And I think that technology, t to me, offers these constant points of 
criticality, but we tend, uh, and we're encouraged to do that also, mm -hmm. we tend and are encouraged to go into a more orderly, predictable uh, way of doing things with passive. these technologies. Yeah. yeah, passive, because they're essentially, they're essentially made to be seductive, right? Yeah, there was a, a student here um, at, uh, who was uh, working in one of the fellowship programs last summer who was um, toying with a lot of kind of evolutionary theory and a term there, um, which I think illustrates exactly what you're talking about with grammars of action, is something called the, the adjacent possible, right? In which there are only a certain number of ways in which an organism can mutate given its current biological structure. And so um, the way in which evolution operates is also path-dependent. And so we kind of extrapolated that to, you know, what, what, what are adjacent impossibles and how can we imagine those? On the other hand, right, if, if we go back to some of the some of the things that were said at the beginning of this whole revolution in the '80s and '90s, with the you know some of the cyberpunk writers, Gibson had this famous line, and I'm sure Professor Finn, you've heard this line over and over again, is right that the street finds its own use for everything, right? So, Facebook imposes something, and Google does, but there are always people are trying to break this monopoly and this way of thinking. So. And I think uh, your center and Building 21 are little steps in that direction. <laughs> Partners in the revolution. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think it's really wonderful to see more projects and initiatives like this pop up around the world. I think it's really important work, and I think it speaks it speaks to the challenges facing us, right, that, that more groups find this an important and, and necessary thing to do. Uh, because I think we have to we have to practice these modes of thinking and open up these spaces for people right. to do interesting work. You know, th this is further evidence, I think, that you know these, these challenges are here and that uh, people people are starting to see and respond to them. So this was fantastic. Thank you very very much. Uh, this was absolutely fascinating. Uh, it was my pleasure. Thank you all, uh, and I look forward to seeing the podcast go up. Great, excellent. Have a great bye -bye. day. Bye bye. Bye-bye.